Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. The age of revolution in the Atlantic world first began, more or less, with the American Revolution in 1775. But something curious happened during the process of creating democratic republics. Time and time again, charismatic leaders emerged to lead those revolutions, leaders who were literally men on horseback. My guest David Bell argues that modern forms of charismatic leadership, although made imaginable by the cultural and intellectual changes of the 18th century, only fully emerged in the crucibles of revolutionary crisis, the founding of new states, and warfare on titanic scale. David A. Bell is the Sidney and Ruth Lapidus Professor in the Era of North Atlantic Revolutions at Princeton University. His most recent book is Men on Horseback, The Power of Charisma in the Age of Revolution, and it is the focus of our conversation today. Professor Bell, thank you for, for joining us. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So uh, let's uh, start where you start with uh, coming up with a short definition of charisma. Um, we'll get to this at the end again, we'll return to it, but um, charisma is awfully uh, freighted with lots of psychological and, and even advertising um, jargon. You, in fact, quote an ad for salad dressing, which describes it as having charisma. So um, how can we uh, have a short definition of charisma to be getting on with? Uh. That's it's actually a difficult question to come up with the short the short definition. Uh, I think it's easiest to start off in, a, in by by putting to the side what is often seen as the standard definition. You go to a magazine like Psychology Today, and it has a standard definition saying that charisma is a personal quality uh, mm -hmm. that's composed of confidence, exuberance, charm, sex appeal, uh, and that attracts people. And while that's certainly part of it, I think the important thing to remember is that charisma is actually a relationship. Charisma is, is not just the quality that, some, that a person has, but the way people react to that quality. I would actually define it as the, the sense that people have that a person uh, has extraordinary and extraordinarily magnetic qualities. Um, so if I had to give a short definition, that's 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 what I would come up with. Well, I, I like that very. The the relationship I think is key, um, since then uh, there there we're not just talking about the people with charisma, but the people who respond to it or see that person as embodying charisma. And all of a sudden, we've got a community of people, uh, where uh, and we're stretching we're stretching much more beyond this as as we'll talk about later. Uh, sort of great man theory of history. Absolutely, and. Uh, you know, it's, it's important to remember, I mean, people will talk about, you know, a certain person having charisma. Donald Trump, for instance, is Donald Trump charismatic? Well, as far as most liberals are concerned, not in the least. He's more repulsive. Uh, but on the other hand, to his followers, he's intensely charismatic. So again, it really depends on the community that you're looking at and why a particular community may see somebody as charismatic, not just mm -hmm. the, the qualities obviously have something to do with it, but the, but it's not the whole story by any means. Now, you speak uh, throughout the book about modern charisma. Um, 
I read the Iliad and Achilles seems to me to be charismatic. I read uh, Plato's dialogues to Socrates is charismatic. Um, Alcibiades is certainly charismatic and that comes across. Um, you refer in the book uh, in your, as you discussed Boulevard, one of his uh, lieutenants, Jose Antonio Pais, you uh, refer to as having pre-modern charisma. So what's pre-modern charisma versus modern charisma? Well, uh, I think charisma is very much a feature of, of, of most, if not all, human societies. And I agree. Achilles is intensely charismatic, so is Alcibiades. Uh, but in, in pre-modern societies, societies where, the, where print media and other media and other media don't play a large role, charisma is essentially something which is generated in interpersonal interactions, where you have somebody actually talking to you, appearing before you, doing deeds uh, before you, as Achilles did, and, and where there are often sort of rituals that help amplify and magnify a person's, a person's charisma. I think things change in the modern period when you have first print media and then other forms of media that serve to create an image of somebody uh, for people who haven't actually seen that person uh, up close, who only know the person through the through the medium, and the early modern period is a period of intense expansion of print media, particularly the late 18th century, when you have this enormous expansion, most importantly of newspapers, but also of non nonverbal media such as engravings, where you can actually see a portrait of somebody. And this creates an image in the mind of people, again, who, who have not seen the charismatic figure up close. And so there's a difference. It's, it's, it allows a kind of charismatic bond to be created with a much larger group than ever before. Mm -hmm. um, we, and so it, may, it magnifies the power, I think, of charisma. Um, but at the same time, it changes the, you know, the, the nature of the interaction. We might even count as a proliferating technology letters, um, cheaper paper, cheaper ink, literacy enables the, these people to communicate uh, other people to com to communicate with others about the way they feel about George Washington, Simone Bolivar um, in a way that is unprecedented. Uh, people could perhaps they could write letters from Athens to Sparta or Thebes, but not at that volume and, and with that intensity or the profusion of descriptions either. I think that's exactly right. I mean, one thing that we tend to forget is just how much time literate people in the late 18th and early 19th centuries tended to spend actually writing letters every single day. It would not be unusual for people to spend two or three hours sometimes a day, mm -hmm. every day, writing letters. So absolutely, this is another form, although, of course, a newspaper could immediately reach thousands yeah. of people or tens of thousands, whereas a letter would, I mean, it could be distributed and then read among several people, but it would still be a less... Uh, now, you know, a, a less broad distribution. Now, just to pound this home, um, just one last nail on this. Um, why isn't, say, Louis the Fourteenth, a man who spends immense amount of time on his personal image, uh, why is he not then charismatic in the sense that we're going to talk, discuss? Well, because there's another shift, I think, between the early modern period. Certainly, Louis the Fourteenth did try very hard to already to have his image circulated before the people of mm -hmm. France uh, in sculptures and paintings, also in print, although not, not quite as much in print as, as later figures would do. Um, but there's also the question in talking about modern forms of charisma about what is it that is perceived as actually making the person charismatic? 
what is it that people perceive as so intensely attractive about the person? So for Louis XIV, what really what he tried to make at the heart of his own charismatic image was the idea that he played the role of a king particularly well, that he was a, a, an especially, uh, especially talented, especially attractive monarch. And being a monarch in France at the time meant, first, of course, that, you, that your legitimacy came from the fact that you had inherited the throne from your father, as he had inherited it from Louis, from Louis XIII, and then also from the fact that this was an arrangement that was blessed by God that he was in fact divine king by divine right so he was performing a role that uh <clears throat> and and his qualities came both from the religious sanction and from his inheritance from his dynasty and that this allowed him to to be a king to the fullest possible extent when we start talking about charisma in the age of revolution uh people are not no longer seen as being charismatic for this reason they are seen as being charismatic because of innate qualities, personal qualities that do not necessarily come from inheritance or from God. So that in the case of somebody like George Washington, for instance, he was seen as simply being this person who had these immense natural gifts, these natural talents. Um, so this marked a real, a real break with the royal charisma of somebody like, like Louis XIV. Well, let's go first to, of all places, Corsica and mm -hmm. the figure of Pasquale Paoli, who uh, you persuade me is immensely important to this initiating uh, as an initiatory figure, sort of John the Baptist of, of modern uh, political charisma. Um, first of all, who, who the heck was he? Since I'm, I'm imagining most of my listeners have no idea uh, who he was, even though they might live in Paoli, Pennsylvania. Exactly. Maybe if they don't live in Paoli, Pennsylvania, they'll have some vague idea. Maybe not, actually. <laughs> Maybe um, not. But Pasquale Paoli, as it was pronounced in, in Italian, uh, sure. was the leader of the independent state of Corsica. Now, Corsica, of course, is this large island in the Mediterranean, most famous now for having produced Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, it had been ruled for centuries by an Italian republic, the Republic of Genoa. Uh, but in the 18th century, the Corsicans rebelled against the Genoese. And for about 13 years, until France came in and conquered the island, they managed to establish an independent state. And they owed this above all to their leader, who was Pasquale Paoli. And Paoli was, was actually quite an extraordinary person. He uh, was himself trained as a military officer. He managed to train the Corsicans into quite a formidable military force, at least as far as the Genoese were concerned. He wasn't able to do so well against the French, who had a much larger, more modern and more professional army. But Paoli was really quite was already quite genuinely an extraordinary figure who inspired immense loyalty among among the Corsicans. Um, but the the reason he's important for my story is that in these years, which is 1755 to 1768, he attracted immense attention in Western Europe and also in North America. Uh, during this time, almost all of Europe was a Europe of monarchies or of aristocratic republics like Genoa or Venice. And there was really very little opportunity for a kind of modern charismatic figure to emerge in any of these places because the head of the state was the monarch or the doge or some sort of established hereditary figure. But Paoli seemed to have come out of nowhere. Uh, his father had been a, an important figure in Corsica, but by no means the most important man on the island. Uh, Paoli seemed to emerge by virtue of his own talents, his own magnetism, and he uh, and so he, there, there was already in the 1760s this cult around him that began to circulate in, in print in Western Europe and in North America. 
this was due particularly to one really talented writer, which was the, the young James Boswell, uh, better known as the biographer of Samuel Johnson. Um, and when Boswell was very young and very and completely unknown, uh, he he heard about Paoli. He heard about him from Jean-Jacques Rousseau, of all people, and decided, <laughs> all right, I'm going to go meet this guy. So he sets off. He takes a ship from from southern Italy to Corsica. He travels for for ten days in in the course in, in Corsica to meet Paoli and falls completely under his spell. I mean, it is love at first sight. It is just complete sort of man crush on on Paoli, and he spent you know some time with Paoli. Then he goes back to 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 England, uh, starts to write essays about Corsica, sort of praising the Corsican fight for independence urging Britain to support the brave Corsicans against the Genoese and then against the French despots. And then he writes a book, uh, which has this, you know, just really sort of over the top florid uh, profile of, of Paoli. But the book becomes an enormous bestseller. It makes Boswell's reputation. It uh, gets attention in North America too, where not surprisingly, the idea of an overseas uh, territory fighting for independence against a big despotic uh, European oppressor has a certain resonance. <laughs> so, um, so in in all these ways, Paoli becomes quite famous. Uh, the the fame acquires a kind of tragic tinge when he's defeated and has to go to what is actually a very comfortable exile in London. Uh, but uh, for this reason, he becomes the first great model of this new form of charisma. It's a, again a form of charisma which is vehicled through print, which is understood through print, um, and it's attached to these figures who are seen as really coming out of nowhere and having this charisma just because of their innate qualities, rather than because they've inherited their office or because God has blessed them. So I think and that's the, the things, significance of Paoli. Yeah, and one of the things you draw out from that is the way that Boswell creates a sort of template. Um, but, uh, he wishes to see Paoli in his. Uh, teasing moments. He wants, wishes to chronicle his, his personal quirks. And those who know Boswell are familiar with him doing that with Samuel Johnson, first in the the journey to the the Western Isles, but then later on in in the in the great biography. But he does that with Paoli first, and that becomes a sort of way of seeing the charismatic modern leader in a way that, as you say, Louis the Fourteenth would never have tolerated. Yes, absolutely. Because yet another aspect of of this modern charisma is the idea that even though the the charismatic figure is seen as being absolutely extraordinary. There's also the idea that you can get up close to that figure, that you can treat that figure like a celebrity. We always want to peer into celebrities' private lives. We always want to imagine that we know them personally. It's why people will always talk about celebrities on a first-name basis. Oh, yeah, Kanye. What is Kanye doing today? And so on and so forth. Well, he's going crazy. Okay, what's different from yesterday? Anyway, <laughs> um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau himself was, was one of the first great modern celebrities, and everybody referred to him as Jean-Jacques. And there's a there's a, a real power in portraying an extraordinary figure in this way and being able to sort of literally in, in Boswell's case admitting the public into Paoli's bedroom and showing him getting dressed in the morning, showing him these little quirks of character, um, describing him really like a character in a novel. Uh, this was a century in which people were were reading novels to an extent that, it, that that they had never done so before, and in which novels were themselves really trying very strenuously to show characters in these kind of un, un, unrehearsed teasing moments when they showed their, quote, real selves, close quote. This is a very standard phrase from the period. And Boswell showed that you could also do this with political leaders. You could create a bond by really showing them up close and personal, making people imagine that they knew them on a one-to-one -one basis. And this also creates this very powerful 
emotion that people feel towards somebody like Paolo. Absolutely. And this will continue even if someone like Mason Locke Weems has to invent the intimate moments, since Washington, like Louis XIV, didn't really enjoy showing those those intimate moments. Yes, absolutely. So, so, so after discussing Paoli, the next the next chapter yeah. of the book turns to the United States and discusses George Washington. And Washington is, is is was in some ways, you know, he doesn't fit exactly the same mold that Paoli does. Paoli was very ready to promote himself and to invite people into the bedroom. Washington would never invite anybody into his bedroom. He would have been horrified by the thought, and he was horrified by the very idea of familiarity. Uh, but it didn't stop people from trying to present Washington in the way that Boswell had presented Paoli. Already in his lifetime, there were biographers who were gleefully you know, revealing what Washington ate for breakfast and things like that. <laughs> uh, and then even so, during Washington's lifetime, there was still some reticence because he was such a beloved figure, and you didn't, and people could get into trouble for for peering too deeply into his, into his life. Uh, but then, once he died, all the restraints were off, and right away came along this this huckster and itinerant preacher named Mason Locke Weems, who wrote this first enormously popular biography of George Washington, uh, which came out. The first edition came out within months of Washington's death. And, and and tried to show him again. I mean, Weems himself said, and I'm, I'm quoting more or less, he said, private life is real life. So he mm -hmm. said, if, if, to, to show you how great Washington was, I have to show you him in his private life. And since Weems actually didn't know very much about the private life of George Washington, he was very happy simply to make it up out of whole cloth. Uh, so the story of George Washington and the cherry tree is the most famous of the inventions of Mason Locke Weems about George Washington. But it's not the only one, and it's it's one of many, many, many in the book. I mean, it's a hilarious book, um, also because it's a book which which tries to make a kind of evangelical Christian out of George Washington, which is also not the easiest thing to do. But no, uh, but it's all all this is based on attributed. He always meticulously attributes it to neighbors, as if he's in a very comprehensive oral history of the the life of Washington. So there's there's always that sort of there's sort of like a pseudo apparatus behind it to indicate to everyone this is this is the real stuff. Uh, yeah, that you're no, learning, absolutely. The intimate facts that you're learning about the great man. Absolutely, it's rather like the the strategies used by the novelists of the period, who would mm -hmm. who would who would always say, you know, I I happen to have come across this packet of letters which I thought might be of interest to the public, yeah. uh, right? And so presenting the the this epistle yeah epistolary novel as mm -hmm. as 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 real letters that the that the author present has just happened to find and has edited, right? Now, now the curious thing, as you as you bring out, um, is that Washington's fame uh, became red hot even at the moment of his greatest uh, defeats uh, in 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 the course of the year of seventeen seventy six, which is by the end of that year, is the, it's the worst year of the American Revolution for the for the movement for the cause. Now, how, can you describe that and and why you think that happened? Sure. Um... So yes, uh, so Washington, you know, had had in general a fairly checkered military career. In fact, much of his military career was 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 not as successful as people now tend to think. Uh, in the when his first military engagements in the in the Seven Years' War had been had, the French and Indian War had been a disaster. Uh, when he took command of the American forces, he did manage to force the British out of out of Boston in the spring of '76. But then. In the summer of 76, he lost the, the Battle of Brooklyn, which was by far the worst defeat the Americans had had during the Revolutionary War. It was a complete disaster. It was due in part to his own tactical mistakes. 
Uh, he, the American, the American army had to first abandon Brooklyn for Manhattan. Then they were sort of chased up the island of Manhattan and then went across from what is now Washington Heights, what was then Fort Washington to Fort Lee on the other side, and then had to do this humiliating trek through New Jersey, during which they lost basically about 90% of their strength as people simply left the army, went back to their farms, their enlistments came to an end, and so forth. Uh, so this was really a, a terrible, dire time for, for the American Revolution. This is when Tom Paine writes the his newspaper called The Crisis, which begins with the famous line, these are the times that try men's souls. And, and yet Washington during this period, and Washington is blamed for a lot of this by his subordinates. A lot of people in the army are saying, you know, we, he's just not a very good general. We need something better here. And, and yet during this period, there's not a single note of criticism that I could find in an American newspaper. And the cult of Washington, the praise for Washington is just exploding at the same time in, in newspapers and in poetry, in prose, in, in all sorts of sort of tchotchkes essentially, which have his image. So um, the question, you know, why is this? And what I tried to suggest in the book is that, well, you know, the Americans really needed somebody like him. They needed a figure that they could rally around. They needed a figure that they could idolize. Uh, they needed somebody, they needed a savior figure in whom they could put their trust. And, and Washington really fit the part very well. He certainly looked the part. I mean, you have to imagine that you're sort of back in, in, in say, the summer of 1775 in New England. Um, and this is a very sober colony, of course, with its Puritan background. People are not in the habit of sort of displaying themselves in a very gaudy way. And, and modesty and, and sort of plainness are, are, are greatly prized virtues. And then up comes this, this man from Virginia, this aristocrat. I mean, he is an American aristocrat. And he, he's, he's tall. Uh, he's riding this magnificent horse. He has this impeccable uniform. Uh, he has the wig, which is perfect. Uh, he stands perfectly with perfect posture. He has grace. He has these incredible manners. Uh, he just makes, you know, for these people in New England, he looks like he sort of dropped out of a spaceship or something. Um, Abigail Adams at the time writes this letter to, to her husband, John, who's away in Philadelphia. And she says, she sort of misquotes Dryden. And she says, oh, you know, my God, this man is like a temple formed by the hands of God. Um, Adams probably wasn't very pleased to, to have her gushing <laughs> over another guy like this, right? And so, so he really looks the part. And he acts the part too. I mean, he, he has, you know, he has, he, he does have great strength of character. He has great, he has great strength full stop. He is a very, very strong man. Um, he's very inspiring to look at. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's very steady. And so he plays the part extremely well and people just fall over themselves for him. And even in the midst of these military disasters that he is partly responsible for, they are still absolutely convinced that this guy will, will save them. And then, of course, comes Trenton, uh, immortalized in the great painting that's now in the, in the Metropolitan Museum in New York of Washington crossing the Delaware uh, and the defeat of the Hessians. And then a few days later, the battle, which, of course, being a Princeton faculty member, I'm particularly fond of the Battle of Princeton, which, 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 he, which he also wins. And at this point, uh, you know, the, 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 just the adulation just becomes a kind of tsunami of praise. It's just absolutely amazing how, how they now are free to gush over him. Now, perhaps one suggestion has been uh, is that Washington quickly occupies the space that, uh, that George III has just vacated or really been pushed out of. 
uh, Washington's birthday is being celebrated as early as 1777, I believe. And then mm-hmm. it's in, right. uh, there's a Washington, Massachusetts in 1776 or 77. Um, so really, he's just taking the king's place. Um, you, you don't buy that, and why not? Well, I, I mean, there is certainly something to this. I mean, uh, also at the time, you know, people are now singing, you know, they're taking the song, God, God, save, God save the king, and they're, they're saying, God, God damn the king, and they're, they're, they're rewriting the words so that the words to the, to the anthem go, God save great Washington, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, and, and so there is something to this. Um, but he's not a king. They don't, they don't treat him as a king. This is the time actually when anti-royal sentiment in America reaches its absolute height. There's a kind of, you know, almost whiplash effect because the Americans had been for the most part, quite royalist until the revolution, at least the white free Americans had been quite royalist. And, uh, and then famously on, on July, on, in July of 1776, after the Declaration of Independence is read in New York, they, the, a crowd rushes down to Bowling Green and topples the statue of King George III, and it's eventually melted down into some 42,000 bullets, uh, lead bullets. Uh, but he's but he's not a king. He's not being. Nobody is 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 suggesting that his family should 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 rule. Nobody is suggesting that he's there because God has 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 cho- has chosen the Washington family to rule over America. Uh, again, it is his own personal qualities which are being which are being held up here. And uh, whenever anybody even suggests that, uh, you know, that he might be king of America, he's slapped down. So while there is, in some ways, a kind of symbolic place which is left open, the story is much more complicated than that. And this is not, uh, this is not a monarchy which the Americans are creating. Mm-hmm. So in, in many ways, Washington becomes a template for those who follow him. Uh, how so? In what way, what sort of do they, it's copied. Uh, one thing is, I mean, these are men on horseback. I mean, and Washington is, as Jefferson says, uh, the greatest horseman of his age, full stop. Um, which is saying something because Jefferson's acknowledged to be a really good uh, rider himself. Um, and that has a certain power. That, uh, I forget which author gets very poetic and says, you know, to be a man on horseback is to be a centaur. Um, there is something to that. Um, what are some other templates? Um, well, just to talk about about the horseback riding just for one moment. I mean, sure. yes, this is absolutely this is absolutely important. I mean, Washington. Uh, I mean, you know, again, we we are a society in which you know, for almost all of us, horses have have no place, and we we tend to forget just how important horses were in all of these early modern societies. Uh, you know, and being able to ride really well, you know, is, is a difficult thing. I mean, to, to, to really have that skill is quite impressive. Also, the very horses were, were very impressive. I mean, to have a, a war horse, a real cavalry mm-hmm. horse, uh, was nothing like having a kind of typical horse for the farm or a, a horse connected to a cart in a city. Uh, these horses were bigger. They were much more handsome. It took a lot of work to take care of them. Uh, they cost probably the equivalent of a Maserati today. Mm-hmm. Uh, they cost the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars today. And uh, so, and it could also be quite a frightening sight if you were at the receiving end of a cavalry charge when somebody who really knew how to handle the horse was charging down at you and striking down at you with a, with a, with a sword that was sharpened to a razor's edge. Uh, this was a very, very you know, powerful image indeed. Uh, so, there were, so, um, so Washington, again, I mean, this is all the more reason why Washington was so absolutely impressive to people because he could do this. Um, and it's one of the reasons he did form this, this template, uh, being, being a man on horseback, being a military leader, 
being someone who was seen as possessed of sort of, again, of great natural gifts. All of this was, was a model that was really irresistible for, for people elsewhere, elsewhere to, in, in, to follow, both in Europe and the Americas. I would say also that Washington had always been a true artist at social climbing. I mean that in, a, in terms of almost approbation. Um, he'd done a, a masterful job of ascending from um, a middling, not too respectable Virginia gentry family up to the heights of, of colonial status by 1774. Um, and part of that came uh, through his, his real gift at self-presentation. Um, he always designed his own uniforms right up until the year before he died. He was designing yes. his own uniform, or something yes, he has absolutely. in common with all of these. Uh, all these guys love to design their own uniforms. Yes, um, uniforms. Uniforms are are important. Again, these are these are these are much more militaristic societies than the ones we live in today. The uh, the army is uh, maybe common soldiers are not admired, but the army is admired. The the commanders are certainly admired, and uh, and uniforms are are looked up looked up to in a way that uh, and they're present in the society in a way that that that, that, that they're not today in, in most parts of the United States certainly, so so yes absolutely this is all this all goes to the forging of of the image and the legend uh, Washington is, is 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 and of course Washington also knew how to marry very well mm -hmm. uh, he married into into a great deal of money and this also helped him with the presentation uh, yeah. it allowed him to. To establish a you know a really an aristocratic lifestyle in exactly the way that he had hoped, and to fashion his image in exactly the way he wanted. And uh, like all, I think all uh, the uh, those who follow him, he's also very interested in the theater. He got, when he's uh, attends Williamsburg, the legislature in Williamsburg. When he's in Philadelphia, he attends the theater a lot. And the theater is important to all of these men. Uh, they and they see themselves as players on a stage. Absolutely. Absolutely, they all do. And the, the theater, the theater is, you know, in many ways, the most important uh, entertainment of the of the period. It, it is where people go to, not just to see the plays, but to be seen themselves. Uh, the Comédie Française in Paris is has an, an immense cultural significance, as does Covent Garden in London or Drury Lane. Uh, and the theater in America is is one of the principal arenas where people come together socially, uh, and. And it was also where they learn a great deal about self-presentation, as Washington certainly did from watching plays like uh, like Cato by Addison, particularly his favorite play. Yes. Well, briefly, um, how do you see him uh, as different from those who followed? Um, certainly that was often discussed, especially by Americans, when they considered Napoleon or L'Overture or Bolivar. But um, how was he actually different? Was it just simply, was it him or was it his context? I think it was very largely his context. I mean, Napoleon in his exile wrote uh, some, some quite revealing lines. He said, you know, I would have wanted to have been a French Washington, but I could never be a Washington in France. I would have been a failure had I tried to be Washington. I could only have been a Washington in America. And I think he's actually quite right about this. Not that Napoleon actually did want to be a Washington type character, <laughs> but the context is, is very different. I mean, the we were, I mean, Washington, I think took his was was genuinely a very sober, serious person who took his Republican uh, responsibilities very seriously. But it was the context that allowed him to do this, and I think we have to remember that as well. So that even though there were quite a few desperate moments in the American War, uh, you know, for most of the war, I mean, and even though it was in in many ways a civil war against the Loyalists. The revolutionary forces themselves, were, they were not divided among themselves. And for the most part, they were not under direct threat. Um, 
<clears throat> New York was Philadelphia. New York was occupied. Philadelphia was briefly occupied. But um, for most of this period, the the Americans were able to, you know, to basically to maintain normal government without having to resort to to kind of drastic emergency measures. They did against the loyalists, but against themselves within their own communities. These communities continued to function more or less normally throughout the revolution. And so, you know, there were many moments at which people were saying, oh, Washington has become a dictator because he's been given certain extraordinary powers. But in fact, he didn't get all that many extraordinary powers during the revolution, and he didn't need to. Uh, the closest they came was when there was a proposal to have him actually be able to name all the senior ranks of the army, and this never really came about. And so... Um, and that was already seen as being dangerously dictatorial by the people at the Congress in Philadelphia. Uh, so, um, so I think Washington, and then of course, you know, the, the war was won fairly quickly. Uh, by by 1781, Washington had won at, at Yorktown, and then the peace came two years later. Uh, but there was never really the need for for a kind of di dictator in in or dict for, for anybody to hold emergency powers in the United States. Now, if you look at any of these other situations, they were far more desperate. Uh, France in the, in the French Revolution um, was engaged in basically in, in, in several civil, civil wars simultaneously, as well as an outside, an external war, which dwarfed anything the Americans had faced where France was facing a Europe-wide coalition. Uh, in the months before Napoleon Bonaparte seized power, France was in danger of being overrun and defeated, and there was the Declaration of the Fatherland in danger. Um, Haiti was in the midst of, or what became Haiti, Saint-Domingue was in the midst of one of the most complicated civil wars in all of human history, I think. It's mm -hmm. still incredibly difficult for me to explain it to my students because there were so many different sides to it. Uh, South America was uh, also facing enormous internal strife as well as the, the very complex fight for independence against, against Spain. So in all of these situations, it was simply much more difficult for ordinary civil rule to continue. And in all of these situations, you had the, the temptation for the other figures that I look at to seize dictatorial powers. Now, again, I think in some cases, certainly in Bonaparte's case, uh, personal ambition did play very much of a role here, as well as the lack of any kind of representative tradition um, in these countries. Nonetheless, uh, I think that uh, the, the context mattered an enormous amount. Well, let's move to France. Um, one of the things that really stands out to me um, is the way in which, uh, from your presentation, is how uh, that the people of France uh, during the years of the French Revolution, um, all the way up to Napoleon, uh, were really looking for a charismatic leader, but without success. Is is that fair reading yes, of what you're saying? Absolutely. So I think that, again, just as in the United States, people in France were, were looking for charismatic leaders. I think at the beginning of the revolution, it's often forgotten that people often seized on Louis XVI himself, the king, mm -hmm. as, as this figure, because he had accepted, or he seemed to have accepted, a lot of the revolutionary changes. And so people said, okay, he's the great liberator of France. He is our, our liberator figure. Uh, and then as the revolution went on, there were many other figures who, uh, who they seized on in the same way as a kind of savior figure. Uh, the most remarkable was, was Maximilien Robespierre. Now, Robespierre is, is, is a fascinating figure, I think, in, in this story, because Robespierre was always, at least, at least in, in his words, he was an enormous opponent of any kind of personal power, of, any, of, the, of the very idea that somebody should 
uh, have power because of their own person, their own personality. Uh, he first made his career in the in the in the revolution with a with a with a speech. Robespierre, no, Robespierre denounced the uh, uh, the very idea of giving of, of of an executive who would be anything more than simply the the kind of the instrument of the of the popular will. Um, and France, in the first five years of the revolution, from 1789 to 1794, uh, was a country where people were getting up again and again to denounce others as being dictators in the making, as as kings in the making, as people who wanted to seize power uh, purely, you know, in order to exercise, you know, their own personal will. So that the Marquis de Lafayette was denounced in this way. He wrote a. A, a letter to George Washington, actually, where he said, "Here I am, this much, this oft blackened dictator," uh, and um, many other figures, Danton, Marat, others, were were all accused of wanting to become dictators, um, as was Robespierre. Um, and Robespierre would always furiously deny this and say, "I, I want to be nothing but the the impersonal instrument of the people." Um, and I think Robespierre actually meant this, although he did use this in a sense that this was in in a way his own ticket to power. But he genuinely didn't want to exercise power personally. And yet, by the very desperate spring of 1794, when France was plunged into the terror, uh, which was partly of his making, of course, and when it was fighting these desperate battles for the survival of the revolution, uh, during the same period, people were increasingly seizing on, on Robespierre himself as a savior figure. They were Crowds were cheering, you know, vive Robespierre. Uh, his colleagues in the Committee of Public Safety were urging him to become dictator. Uh, people were besieging him at the, at the at his Paris apartment, asking him for personal favors. And uh, <clears throat> then he he fell from power and was executed, and was then, you know, anathematized as a as a as a dictator afterwards. Um, but uh, but even as the very idea of personal power was continually being denounced, and even as you know, even as the the republic was creating this weird position of the what they called the directory, where executive power would be shared among five people, uh, precisely so that no no single man could could exercise it. All through this period, there was this clear desire for a savior figure, for a charismatic savior, and finally along comes Napoleon Bonaparte, who seems to even as an obscure. Corsican captain of artillery seems to have realized that need and set about to discover how he could f fulfill it. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful letter. One of my favorite letters from the period is a letter that is written between two of Napoleon's brothers. Hmm. Uh, so it's being written from Lucien Bonaparte to Joseph Bonaparte. And Lucien is saying, and this is in, I think, 1791, when Napoleon <laughs> is all 22 years old. And Lucien is saying, you know, I really don't trust Napoleon. He, he's really power hungry. And <laughs> if God forbid he should ever actually, you know, reach a position of real power, he would become a dictator in, in two seconds. Uh, and this is his brothers talking to each other, his brothers who we both do very well out of his career. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I mean, he, he does see this very early on. And he does. And then when he gets into a position where he can actually do something about it, when he becomes this enormously successful general, he, he very soon sets his sights on, on power. You say, in his propaganda, Bonaparte cultivated two distinct audiences. And I should say, it's you, you also it's very much his propaganda. He is the uh -huh. creator of his own cult. Um, his two audiences were the public back in France, but also the army, very important. Uh, something that Washington never would have thought of. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Bonaparte is in some ways here the, the, the opposite of Washington, as, as we've been talking about him. Uh, because Washington 
although Washington was somebody who had the cult made for him around him, he 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 always you know st was standoffish and would ref did not want people to be treating him in this way. Uh, Bonaparte was yes, treat me in this way. I mean, uh, please go for it. I mean, and Bonaparte was very much the author of his own propaganda, and he did have these two audiences, and the army was the the first and most important audience. Uh, between you know when Bonaparte first came to great public acclaim in 1796, he did so as the commander of the Army of Italy, which was outside of France, which was apart from France, and and he remained outside of France for most of the next three years until he took power first in in Italy and then and then in Egypt, um, and during this period he cultivated support above all among his soldiers, and there he did so partly through newspapers, partly through print. Uh, there he published newspapers for the army, in which he was blowing his own horn very effectively and continuously. Uh, he was also doing so through personal appearances, of course. Uh, but, you know, strikingly, he he was also trying very much to cultivate a, a kind of personal relationship again with the soldiers. And there's a was a, a wonderful moment when, supposedly, at, at the Battle of Lodi, in Italy, uh, Napoleon was originally trained as an artillery officer, of course, and one of the people manning a cannon nearby was actually was actually uh, disabled and napoleon steps in himself and helps to load the cannon and very effectively and at the end of the battle the cannon crew say you know we're going to elect you our new corporal <laughs> uh he was the general of course but they say we're going to elect you our new corporal and he becomes known ever after as le petit caporal the little corporal and the army loves him for this and the army loves him for the fact that he will be there standing in the front line that he has and he really did have enormous personal courage and that he would be willing to share the privations of the soldiers, that he would be next to them, that he would tug them by the ear, that he would slap them on the back. Uh, they just adored him for this, and, and, he, and they really did adore him uh, to, to an absolutely extraordinary extent. And that he can promote someone from being private to a marshal of France. Um, yes, absolutely. There could be a baton in your knapsack. Absolutely. Um, th this Absolutely. is a real possibility. And this is, I guess, is even strategy for promotion. He is promoting the best that he can find, but he looks for it everywhere. He does. Absolutely. And of course, you know, of Napoleon's marshals. Uh, and if you want to know their names, just look at the boulevards around Paris, because these yeah. are called the boulevards of the marshals, and they all have the names of his marshals. And uh, they all have, you know, and so many of them started off as, as common soldiers. Uh, it's really um, quite extraordinary. Bonaparte, you say, he, he said that founders of states governed, quote, more by sentiments and affections than by orders and laws. And you write, indeed, to an extent remarkable in Western history, Bonaparte tried to ground his regime during the empire in the emotional relationship between himself and the French people, the charismatic relationship. Could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So, um, I mean, Napoleon took power by coup d'etat. Of course, he violated the law quite spectacularly in seizing power in 1799 in the coup of the 18th Brumaire. He, he, he did, of course, try to promote constitutions. He, he, he authored several constitutions and, and, and modified them. He, he also was absolutely significant. I mean, he, he was the driving force in creating a new law code. We now know it as the Napoleonic Code. Um, but at the same time, he was very cognizant of the fact that, 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 the, that the relationship that he had with the French people, that he wanted to have with the French people, was not primarily through the rules. It was not primarily through the Constitution. Uh, he felt that it was a kind of personal relationship. Again, he grasped this point about, about charisma you know, really, really quite well, actually, and said, 
you know, that, that if I'm going to stay in power, I need to be supported by popular acclamation, by popular, by popular enthusiasm, by popular emotion. And through his propaganda, he did everything possible to create this personal relationship, both in the army and then also just among the people of France. Uh, when, the, when the army would, would go into battle after 1804, they would go into battle with the chant, Vive l'Empereur, Long Live the Emperor. And in and his portrait was everywhere. His name was everywhere. In in if you go to France today in the Louvre, you can see the name and the, the initial N on half of the buildings. Um, and uh, again, he was very concerned with generating this this personal relationship. He he was happy to have his life story told and to have it embellished in the way that Mason Locke Weems had had embellished uh, George Washington's story uh, for. Uh, the equivalent of the cherry tree story for Napoleon was the idea that when he was at military school in France as a as a as a ten year old, that he actually led his 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 young comrades in a in a masterful snowball fight, in which his, his command of snowball tactics won the battle for for him, <laughs> and uh, and he loved these to have these stories told, and he loved uh, and he and he loved to think that that every single Frenchman, you know, loved him. So. Let's move on to a man he killed, um, imprisoned, and where he died, he killed him. Um, and in, in many ways, uh, his greatest opponent, who is in Wellington, uh, Toussaint Louverture. Um, we should, unfortunately, he's not as well known uh, as he mm -hmm. should be. And he's, in, I think, the most extraordinary of these men, mm -hmm. uh, simply because of the where he started. Uh, so, could you describe him very quickly and uh, what he sure. did? So Toussaint Louverture is the is 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 often is often seen today. Well, he is the great hero of the Haitian Revolution. So he was born a slave in in in, San, in what was then called Saint Domingue, or Santo Domingo, as the Americans called it. But it was the basically the the uh, <clears throat> the western half of the island of Hispaniola. It's what's now known as Haiti. And uh, he was he was born a slave. He uh, was a quite a favored slave. He uh, didn't work in the fields, but he took care of animals, uh, particularly horses, and became an extremely good horseback rider, like 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 not like Napoleon, who was not such a great rider, but like Washington. Uh, and he was actually freed uh, by his by the by the um, by the agent who ran the plantation in the 1770s, uh, and then remained free through till the uh, till the time of the French Revolution. Uh, when the French Revolution started, it tremendously destabilized this colony, which was a slave colony. It was a colony of tremendous cruelty, where the slave population outnumbered the free population by about uh, 15 to 1. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> in 1791, after the colony had been quite destabilized by the French Revolution, there began really the, most, the greatest and most successful slave rebellion in all of history, in all of human history, in, with this massive rebellion of the slaves in the northern plain of Saint-Domingue. And Toussaint Louverture was one of the leaders from the beginning, not the most prominent leader initially, but gradually came to a more prominent position. Uh, once France went to war with Spain, which happened in 1793, uh, the, 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 the black rebels in Saint-Domingue actually uh, enlisted in the army of Spain to fight the, their French oppressors. And Toussaint Louverture was made a general in the army of Spain and fought for Spain for more than a year. Uh, by 1794, the, the, uh, France was now under the control of the radical Jacobins. It was the radical period of the French Revolution. And with things collapsing, in, with the situation collapsing in Saint-Domingue, uh, which was now also being invaded by the British and which was torn in part by this very complex civil war, 
Uh, the, the French officials in Saint-Domingue took the radical step of freeing the slaves. Well, the slaves had already freed, them slaves, freed themselves, of course, but, mm -hmm. the, uh, but uh, this was formalized by, by the French officials in order to win the, 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 the slave armies over to their side. And this eventually did happen, and Toussaint Louverture by this point had become the major leader. And then over the next five years, he had this extraordinary rise, this extraordinary ascension, whereby he managed to not simply be the, the, the leader of the, of the black armies in Saint-Domingue, but he managed actually to outmaneuver and outwit a series of French officials until he became the commander-in-chief of all the French forces on the island and also the governor-general of the island. So he was still very much acknowledging the, 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 the overall sovereignty of France over the island, but he had effectively established autonomy for the island. Um, in fact, he went, but he went so far that in 17, uh, that in 1800, uh, the new ruler of France, Napoleon Bonaparte, got uh, got increasingly frustrated at Toussaint Louverture. Napoleon was very much a racist, very uh, hated the idea of a black man taking power in a French colony, uh, couldn't stand the idea that that Louverture was really you know, by this point, running the, the colony as, as a quasi-independent state. And so he ordered a, a massive expedition, much larger actually than the expedition the French had sent to help the Americans during the American Revolution. But he sent this expedition commanded by his own brother-in-law to go to Saint-Domingue and to reestablish full French control. And it landed, it defeated Toussaint Louverture's forces. Uh, Louverture was lured into a meeting with the, with the French commander, was taken prisoner, and was sent back to France, and he died there uh, in 1803. And yet, in many ways, um, he does resemble Napoleon, uh, as you, as you, as people thought at the time, and as you, as you point out. Um, you say that he was not a charismatic figure in the same way as Paoli, Washington, or Bonaparte, but he is just as important to charisma's modern history. Um, first of all, how's how's that, and how did he resemble Napoleon to some degree? Sure. So he. Um, certainly, his charisma was 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 different in many ways. Uh, for one thing, uh, he, he like many of these people, he had different audiences for his mm. charismatic appeal. Uh, one of which, the most important of which, initially was certainly the 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 armies of the of the former slaves in Saint Domingue, majority of whom had been born actually in Africa, and he had a you know very much a you know kind of in person oral relationship to these people who, for the most part, were, had not been given the chance to learn how to read, did not speak French. Uh, so this is a very different kind of charismatic relationship with them. It's in person. Um, at the same time, he is increasingly treated by uh, the French officials on the island, and then in the press across the Atlantic world, he is being sort of brought into the mold of these other of these other figures and treated as the equivalent of a Washington or a Bonaparte. Yes. Um, he's called the Black Napoleon by by some authors, and uh, but he does resemble Napoleon in quite a few ways. I mean. Like Napoleon, he's somebody who's 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 born in, you know, what's effectively a French colony, whether Corsica or Saint Domingue. Uh, he's he he grows up to actually hate the French as as Napoleon did as well, <laughs> um, and he wants and and initially he wants to to fight to free his his his, his country from France. Uh, Napoleon also had visions of doing this, and uh, and yet. Um, he becomes an officer in the French army, just as Napoleon does, and he becomes a, a general and a commander-in-chief, the head of an army. Uh, he increasingly leads this army in a very independent direction, just as Napoleon does in the same, exactly the same period, so that they're both functioning as, as kind of proconsuls. 
uh, they both have dictatorial tendencies. He's, he certainly does in, in, in Saint-Domingue. Uh, they, they, uh, he, he, like Napoleon, is very much concerned with his own image. He creates a kind of, he, he works very hard to expand the cult around his, his own personality. Uh, and both men end their lives in rather miserable exile. Gouverture uh, mm. in France in 1803 in the Jura Mountains and Napoleon in St. Helena in the South Atlantic. So there is a, a, just a, enormous similarities between their careers. Uh, at the same time, I think I think Louverture is a much more admirable figure. He, while uh, while he did try to revive the plantation economy in Saint Domingue, which had been largely destroyed in the war, and to do this, he had to reduce the the black population to a, to a form of serfdom. Uh, he was still an implacable uh, opponent of slavery and someone who who always fought uh, with every breath against slavery. Whereas Napoleon, in the in the French colonies that he still controlled. Uh, re-established slavery in 1802 after the slaves had been freed by the revolution. Um, we're running out of time, but I can't resist asking you about this this fascinating relationship that he had with uh, General Lavaux. Um, yes. And uh, one of the things that strikes me about all these men is the way that they are so completely turned, tuned into 18th century ideas of sentiment. Um, uh, in many ways, sort of a pre-romantic uh, a, a move uh, of sentiment. Um, and and Louis Vuitton is as well. Uh, he exemplifies that, um, this the meeting of two uh, brothers' hearts, as it were, in correspondence. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is the great age of the sentimental novel. Uh, this is the great age of, of sort of, of, of men weeping, so to speak. I mean, mm -hmm, women weeping mm -hmm. as well. But I mean, you know, you, you read almost any letter from the period and people are just trying to, you know, they're trying to weep onto the page. I mean, my, my, this letter is covered with my tender tears. I mean, phrases like that are just everywhere. It's very embarrassing for us hard-hearted moderns to read sometimes. <laughs> it can be, or, or if, if it goes on for several hundred pages, it can become excruciatingly boring as well. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, some of these novels I just find impossible to, to read yeah. today. Like uh, Bonaparte's. Like, yes, or, or Rousseau's or, yeah, or, or, yeah, or yeah. Richardson's. Uh, but, um, but yes, uh, I mean, the remarkable thing about Louverture, again, he's an incredibly creative and skillful and intelligent man who without ever having formally learned French, because he grows up speaking an African language in Creole, and without ever having been formally taught to read and write, still is able to develop a, a really, with the help of French secretaries, uh, a really quite extraordinary command of the French language and of this sentimental idiom. Um, he certainly hasn't read that many sentimental novels. He hasn't had the time, among other things, or the access to them. And yet he's able to sort of draw on this language really, really well. Uh, and does so particularly with the, the man who is the commander-in-chief of the French forces when Louverture goes over to the French side. So this is a man named Laveau, who is the French general, and they have this extraordinary correspondence, which is still extant, um, in which you see them talking about brothers, you, you talking about each other as brothers, you see them saying, oh, I, I, I weep when I read your letter, I'm, I'm, I'm filled with such tender sentiment at the very idea of seeing you again, and so on and so forth. And for Laveau, who is an aristocrat from Burgundy, this comes very naturally. Um, he's been reading this stuff all his life. For, for Louverture, it's really quite remarkable that he can fall into this quite so easily. Um, but he uses it as well. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he's a canny. He uses it to, to exert this, this hold over, over Laveau, to, to earn Laveau's trust, and then really to, to, to control him psychologically in some ways. Uh, so it's really quite an extraordinary story. Now, despite uh, his uh, captivity and death, uh, Haiti does become an independent uh, nation 
uh, not Republic, um, lots of wrinkles, but we don't have time to get into that. Uh, and yet it has a really, I, I had no idea of the influence it had on the, the last figure in your book, Simon Bolivar. Um, mm -hmm. Briefly, what was that influence? And then let's talk about his political philosophy. My sense of Bolivar is that he's the closest to a political philosopher amongst these guys. Um, and it's really quite fascinating to, to read and to think about. Yes, well, I think it, it, I'm, Simon Bolivar is, is really just an extraordinary figure as well. Um, the, the Haiti is, does play a very important role for him because in 1813-14, he is, he's, he's lost again. I mean, you know, the, the fight for Venezuelan independence is, is, is an incredibly rocky one. And you know, it's by you know by 1815 they're already on the third republic in about four years, uh, because the first two have been destroyed by Spain. Uh, so he has to flee, and where and he flees first to Jamaica, uh, but then he flees to Haiti, and he gets support from the president of what of what is by that point the Haitian Republic, uh, a man named Alexandre Pétion, who gives him uh, who gives him uh, money, who gives him ships, who gives him uh, material support. On condition that Bolivar free the slaves of Venezuela, which he doesn't manage to do, uh, so um, and then Bolivar goes back to to Venezuela. He loses again. He has to flee back to Haiti. He comes in, and then finally he's able to to go back to Venezuela this time for good. Uh, but it's uh, but he very much relies on this, and he's himself very genuinely impressed by uh, Pétion, who is sort of in a sense following the mold of Louverture in being a kind of president for life and a very dominant executive figure. Um, and Bolivar, uh, throughout much of his political writings, refers back to the Haitian example. I mean, there's no particular reason why, you know, 10 years later, when he's mm -hmm. writing a constitution for the country that would become known after him as Bolivia, that, that Bolivar um, needs to be referring to Haiti of all places, but he does. Uh, he says, you know, the, you know, Pétion's constitution is a model for mine. <laughs> um, and he does develop a, a political philosophy, which re is related to many of the things I've been talking about, because mm. Bolivar is a kind of analyst of his own society, which is a, a north of sort of South American society, which is racially mixed, which is deeply divided by class. Um, and he, he says at many times, look, this is not this is not North America. This is not the land of Washington, as he puts it. This is a country which is fractious, which is which is con which is contentious, which is always divided among itself. We can't simply have a constitution that ain't going to work. This is not going to work. We need we need a person. We need a person who can serve as the kind of living embodiment of the people who can serve as the as the center to which everybody else will refer. And we need that person to really be able to inspire enthusiasm and what he Bolivar calls acclamation in this population, because otherwise this experiment in self-rule is just not going to work and the whole place is going to fall apart. So he says, basically, we need me. And acclamation is, as he says, the source of all legitimate power. This is quite a statement. It is quite a statement. And uh, so, and it's again saying, you know, constitutions are not enough. We've had constitutions. We've tried this. And the place has fallen apart. Uh, you know, it's not enough simply to have the consent of the people. That's actually, that's an abstraction. That's, that's cold. We, we need something which is warm and living. And that is when people are not simply voting for somebody because you're the lesser of two evils, but when they are actually excited about you and shouting out your name and rushing into the street to look at you coming through on your horse and, you know, putting your, your picture up on their wall and breathing out your name whenever they can, that's 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 the kind of enthusiasm that will actually bring the people together. 
Let's close on Bolivar uh, with uh, that. Speaking of pictures, there's an incredible picture that you have in the book of, can you describe it, of, of parents showing their children a picture of Bolivar? And this is, this is very meta, as the kids say. It is very, very meta. So this is an engraving which circulated at the time of, of Bolivar, and it shows a dark-skinned couple um, in the countryside in South America actually holding up a portrait of Bolivar for their children and the uh, and it says underneath, aquí está uh, su libertador, here is your liberator. And it's, it, it is very meta. It shows, I mean, it shows, I think, quite clearly the extent to which the cult of Bolivar extended well beyond urban circles. It extended into the countryside and extended well beyond the, the incredibly privileged small white class that Bolivar had come from and the extent to which he actually did inspire enthusiasm and acclamation among a larger segment of the population, among the, the majority of the Venezuelan population, there were mixed race people known as pardos. Uh, and it shows the importance that print had, because it shows the importance that these engravings had. And of course, there's a lot of other testimony to this, to the way that these engravings became kind of icons in people's homes, mm -hmm. that they would sort of gesture towards looking at, at Bolivar or Bonaparte or Washington or Paoli, for that matter, yeah. uh, or Louverture. Uh, but uh, they they would uh, but they would certainly look to Bolivar in this way. And this engraving serves as an iconographic lesson. Um, it's not. It's fascinating. This is not a. It, it doesn't say that line underneath. Here's your liberator. It doesn't say that underneath an engraving of Bolivar. It's underneath an engraving of someone teaching their children about the liberator. Um, exactly. This exactly. is how you use an engraving of of exactly. the liberator. Exactly. Absolutely. So, so it's it, creating it, it, a, a, a culture of, uh, we would say propaganda, but a culture of charisma for an illiterate audience. Absolutely. That's exactly what it's doing, precisely. Um, let's, uh, we're going to have to close up. And I'm, I'm curious, um, you uh, have made the case throughout the book that uh, charisma and democracy go together, like, as you say, the double helix of DNA. Mm -hmm. Um, do you do you would, would you like to leave it there before we have a briefly talk about how we might read charisma back into history? Sure. So, um, <clears throat> I, I think I think it's important to recognize that all of these new democratic states at the beginning were incredibly fragile. Incredi uh, people were not used to being governed like this. They're not used to maybe casting their vote and then having to be ruled by somebody they had voted against. Uh, this generated enormous anxiety. There was no, there were people. There was no tradition as yet in many cases for people to be to be loyal to a system like this. Uh, I think you. It was very important to have these charismatic figures there, uh, in in order to bind people to these new states. Now, in the case of Washington, I think they also bound people to the American bound people to the American Republic. I think in these other cases, well, you know, obviously it was not, these figures ended up not being democratic. This is the flip side, of course, that this charisma can be very dangerous because, you know, this acclamation, this enthusiasm can very easily trump, if you'll excuse the word, uh, people's devotion to, to, to a set of constitutional rules. Um, but at the same time, even there, I mean, you know, Louverture, while he, you know, while he didn't create a lasting democracy, he did help create a lasting state in, in Haiti. Uh, Bolivar did the same thing. Uh, so did so did so did Bonaparte in creating a, a France that was very different from the from the old monarchy or from the revolutionary government. Mm. Um, and they did this through their charisma. They, they bound people to a kind of new system through their charisma. But again, there was also the danger, uh, and that danger is is, is repeatedly there uh, that uh, somebody can can exploit their popularity to to overthrow 
the democratic mm-hmm. system. Yeah, this is uh, you quote uh, John Adams as a critic several times of of, of the mm-hmm. sort of the move to charisma, and this is why I I find John Adams such a fascinating political thinker, a philosophical thinker. Um, unfortunately, he needed better editors, but he, which he never had. But um, he there's I, I had sent you a link to a letter he mm-hmm. wrote to Jefferson, which I don't think Jefferson really understood what he was getting at, and and Adams is basically saying we're always going to have aristocrats, we're always going to mm-hmm. have people that are acclaimed for being taller, for being more beautiful, um, whatever, being richer. Um, we have to find some way in a republic of controlling those people. Um, it, it, it's he acknowledged uh, Jefferson says, oh no, we can we can we can just uh, base people on merit. He'll be or it'll be okay, or or, mm-hmm. or we just, he waves away. So we don't we won't really have this aristocracy. So we'll have meritocracy instead. But Adams is saying no, expect this, but mm-hmm. then con- learn how to control it and fun- unfunnel it and direct it. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, oh sorry, go on. Good, no, that's a. Yeah, no, I mean, so, so, no, I think Adams is an incredibly keen observer of this. I think, I think the, again, the, the, the question of the status of extraordinary figures or of privileged figures in democratic systems has always been one of these great questions. Uh, for Tocqueville, uh, taking sort of the reverse position from Adams in a way, it's not a question of having to deal with these people, but for Tocqueville, you needed these people. You needed some sort of, uh, homegrown aristocracy in order to temper the worst effects of democracy. That's what Tocqueville wrote in Democracy in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> I think, and, 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 but at the same time, Adams, as I quote him many times in the book, was intensely suspicious of these same tendencies. He saw how destructive they could be, particularly around a leader like Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that from 1777, he's warning the, con- the Continental Congress against, you know, paying superstitious veneration, his words, to, to the idol uh, George Washington, and throughout his long life, he's reflecting back on the revolution and saying, you know, Washington, it was, you know, Washington wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't loved because of his, um, <clears throat> Washington wasn't loved because of his uh, great talent. He was loved because he looked good, right? And he, he, he had a success because he looked good and he rode his yeah. horses well. And uh, we have to worry about people being idolized for this, for this, for, in this way. We, but, I don't have time uh, to get into de Tocqueville on this, but I, I would think that de Tocqueville yeah. would be – I wish he had paid a visit to Gran Colombia because he might be unsurprised mm-hmm. by a democracy, democratic movement that in the end emphasized equality rather than freedom. Well, I mean, you know, this is, this is why he was so suspicious of the French Revolution yes. because it could not preserve the two qualities in, in, in harmony with each other but spilled over from – a love of liberty to a pure love of equality and therefore, in his view, into terror. Um, there's lots of things to like about this book. Uh, one of the things I really enjoy is the way you put your sort of, um, we call almost your critical apparatus is in the epilogue. Um, <laughs> makes it very, uh, uh, for me, I was looking forward to it uh, for, as soon as I realized that to get to that part. Um, but it's not the first chapter. It's not the prologue or anything like that. So if you don't want to read that sort of thing, you don't have to. But uh, I read it uh avidly. And uh, I, you, you conclude really by challenging uh, historians to reintegrate charisma into our study of the past. Um, briefly, uh, how? Well, I think it's, again, by, by looking at the relationship, the way that, 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 that leaders actually have a relationship with their followers, with the people who support them and empower them. I think this is, this is really quite crucial. I think that uh, Historians for a long time have been, for many in many different schools of history, have been very suspicious of looking at the role of individuals in history. It, it smacks of the kind of great man theory of Thomas Carlyle. It smacks of 
sort of the worst kind of dead white male history, right? Where, you know, all of history is reduced to a kind of soap opera among these, you know, a handful of, of, of dead white guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the problem here is that, uh, you know, these, these dead white guys had real importance. And not just the dead white guys, the, the dead black guys and some dead 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 white and black and other women as well. But we, the role of, you know, individuals have often played an extraordinarily important role in history. This is something which which uh, schools of history that are oriented towards the social science, such as Marxist schools, have had a great deal of difficulty dealing with. Uh, Marx famously said, uh, men may make their history, but they don't make it as they please. Uh, they make it as social forces condition them to make it. And what we really have to pay attention to is the social forces. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But, you know, you look back at these revolutions and the role of these individuals was really crucial. But it wasn't just because of their own individual qualities. It wasn't as if they were free actors. <laughs> the, the way that they established their power, the way that they established their reputations was through relationships with their followers, which were complex relationships, which depended, which were shaped by the by the surrounding cultures. Um, it, it, and, the, and, the, and the social context, it did allow for a certain degree of leeway. Individual quality certainly did matter. Uh, the fact, you know, these people were quite, that I study were quite different from each other, and that mattered a great deal for the subsequent history of their countries. But nonetheless, these cultural and social contexts matter enormously as well. And we should be integrating this into the study of, of history. We should be, uh, we, we should be focusing on this because it, it, because these things, these are factors that determined how the how the story played out, and what actually happened, and why we are today the kind of place we are. My guest today has been David A. Bell. He is the author of Men on Horseback: The Power of Charisma in the Age of Revolution. David Bell, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.